Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. Most of the podcasts you'll find here are recorded in our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises, but occasionally something or someone else will be featured. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not the thump you with it kind of ones. We believe in the world-changing power of the love of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. We're also always trying to integrate all this culturally applicable truth in real ways that reach our emotions and intellects, as well as our spirits. We're starting 2020 with a seven-part series called The Holiness of Health. The truth about our emotional and mental health doesn't always get centre stage in church, and while this is all stuff that we talk about quite a lot at Bread, we wanted to kick off the new decade with a proper, in-depth look at this stuff. We hope you enjoy it. We're continuing our series on um, the holiness of health. We're looking at how our deeper uh, motivations, our deeper emotions, affect our behavior. In church, it's common for us to talk about our spiritual health. How's your prayer life? It's common for us to talk about our intellectual health. How's your doctrine? And our social health. How's your community or accountability? Sometimes even how our physical health is. But it's rare, I think, but maybe becoming increasingly less rare, to talk about the emotional side of things. So as I have been challenging us, let us try to bring our whole selves to Jesus. Because these things fundamentally affect how we live our lives, how we experience him, how we become the people that he has created us and is redeeming us into. If we're able to actually go there with some things that may be a little bit more difficult to access, maybe a bit more painful, some of the experiences that have affected how we are how we are, then we are able actually to receive all the freedom that he wants to give us. This morning, I want to talk about limitations and embracing them. Specifically, how are we at giving ourselves a break? How are we at actually taking time to rest. I say I want to talk about this, but really I don't. Full disclosure, this is not something that I am good at. There are some things that I have authority to talk about that I am quite good at, things like the theology behind who the Spirit is and what he does, things like what God's grace actually is and how to receive it, things like the love of your Father unconditionally poured out onto you, and things like how Mikel Arteta has managed to, as the new manager of Arsenal Football Club, uh, been able to really um, reinvigorate the midfield by using a double pivot system and effectively Granite Xhaka is now and again dropping into defense, and that allows Lucas Torreira to play his natural role of kind of sweeping in front of the back four and then sometimes breaking forward and joining the attack. Those things I can talk about. Rest, I do not really have that much authority to talk about because I'm not good at it. It's not to say I am a workaholic, although I can be, but I can also be quite lazy. It's that I'm just not very good at giving myself a break and resting. However, having kind of revisited some of this stuff, this emotional health stuff, 
and also Hannah and I sort of taking stock of where we are three years into planting a church here, moving to this country, moving our kids over here, and basically trying to get something off the ground and realizing if we carry on like this, we will surely die. Actually, what I've realized is that there is no escape. And so bear with me as I try to tell you something that I'm not very good at. You're probably worse. In the US, we are amongst the top five most productive countries on earth. We usually make it into the top 10 list when these come out in terms of GDP creation per capita. However, we spend more hours doing that than in all other nations in the top 10. So basically, we are working harder for no direct reward. Now, we're clearly, as a human species, not made to be lazy. The first commandment given to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply. And yet, we're not supposed to be workaholics either. 110 million deaths per year across the globe are stress-related. And stress-related causes of death make up the top six of the top, uh, sorry, six of the top seven. Stress is said to be responsible for 75 to 90% of visits to the doctor. And we Christians are not immune. We may be more than happy to say things like, oh, but his burden is light. Or we're happy to say things like, why don't you cast all your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. And yet we go back to working too long hours, not getting enough sleep, weighing ourselves down with heavy sets of burdens that we do not shift and we think we should be better at dealing with. Something has gone wrong here. You may have heard of this from a couple of years ago. Perpetual Guardian is a New Zealand firm. They are a statutory trust. They employ about 240 people. And two years ago, they trialed a four-day work week because the CEO had realized that his workforce were not actually doing anything uh, that productive with a lot of his time, and they'd read some research about levels of a productivity. For instance, in my home country, in the UK, various research has said that the majority of the workforce actually only works productively for two hours a day. So by giving people an extra day off, this guy theorized that they might be able actually to better, uh, better manage the demands of their whole lives, including their personal admin and their family and their friends, and they would therefore not be distracted and they could actually do their work better. And guess what? It's worked brilliantly. They have now taken it on as a policy, and the workers have all reported being more empowered, more stimulated, more satisfied, more committed, and more confident in company leadership. Work-life balance scores, when they tested them, have increased from 54% to 78%, and job stress has dropped seven percentage points. But most significantly, the output of the company has grown year on year since they took this on. It turns out that employees can not only do what they could do in five days in four days, but they can do what they could do in five days in four days better. It's almost as if having time to do other things as well as having time to rest is actually what we were created to do. And yet knowing this, why do so many of us work ourselves to the bone? 
Let me remind you of the Genesis account of creation as we consider work and rest this morning. This ancient, beautiful story is kind of operating on a much deeper level than just simply a historical record of how the world began. Rather, it's telling us what we're like, what the world is like, and most importantly, how we are supposed to relate to God in this world, to enjoy perfect intimacy with him. So this is very famous, the end of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens of the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So verse 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. As we have often said here, the word for image actually means icon. In fact, that's the Greek word icon. And it means a sense in which we are, have something of God's divinity in us. We are like his vice regents on earth going about doing his work. But there is also another sense to this word which is encapsulated in it, which means as well his impression. It's like when you put your hand in concrete your hand will leave an impression in that concrete that only your hand will fit. And this word has that meaning, that God has placed his hand on every single one of us and left his impression there. And the only thing that will fill fully that impression, perfectly that impression, is the hand of his Holy Spirit on us. As the story progresses, God walks in the cool of the evening through the garden, and he is looking for relationship with Adam and Eve, to put his hand back into the impressions in their lives and to restore and remake them. It was a daily reminder to them, not an optional extra, that we are made for connection with God, and that without it, we won't be fully whole. It is woven into the whole structure of life. But, of course, as you will know, on this particular day, Adam and Eve do not return. They were hiding from the hand that alone could fill them and make them complete. And after their confrontation with God, they are kind of sent out of the garden, cursed to work amongst the thistles and the thorns. But this is never how it was supposed to be. Work for us is not a curse. Before the, uh, before the fall, God had told Adam and Eve to care for and extend the boundaries of creation. Have you ever considered what is outside the Garden of Eden? What is outside is chaos. 
unruly, untamed chaos. And God's commission to humankind is to take his creative powers with them and to co-create with him into the chaos, to go out and subdue it and to fulfill it and to work it. So we are all made for intentional activity. It's what makes our lives fruitful. And it's why unemployment, sadly, is below God's standard for our lives. It's why people can struggle so many ways when they are out of work or when they're finding it difficult to get work. And it's why it is so important that any Christian community, a church like this, looks after people who are struggling for work, who are in unemployment, because they are losing something of themselves, often not through their own fault, as many of you will know. It's why it's also, in the kingdom of God, um, impossible to be retired I, I was looking forward to retirement, and now I realize that I'm not going to retire because it's ungodly. If your parents have retired, tell them they're being ungodly. <laughs> because we're made for fruitfulness. When, uh, when my dad retired, he was a teacher for 36 years at the same school. Um, it was devastating for him because he wasn't just leaving behind a job that he absolutely loved, he was leaving behind friends that he'd had for years, he was leaving behind a whole community, and actually his health deteriorated very quickly after he retired. He um, sort of lost uh, his spark, uh, he, he became quite depressed, and actually he um, suffered from dementia quite soon after that. It was very sad to see him sort of decline because what is uh, unemployment, what is depression if it isn't having no purpose, having no reality for life? We were created on the sixth day to work, to be fruitful and to multiply. And without it, we are lost. But what I think is most interesting is what happens next. Verse 31, God saw that all he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. The seventh day is humankind's first day. They've been created. We have been created in God's image. We have been given a purpose, a reason for living, work to do, and yet our first full day is not work. Tomorrow will work. Our first full day is rest. And this is such an important biblical principle. We are not made to work from our rest. We are made to, sorry, we are made not to rest from our work. We are made to work from a place of rest. And yet, so often, we do the exact opposite. We work and we work and we work and we work, and then we collapse. In uh, that great movie, Saturday Night Fever, reference for the kids, um, John Travolta plays Tony, and he works in this paint store, and he is the king of the um, Brooklyn disco. 
He lives for Friday night. And the whole film is kind of encapsulated in this one little scene where he's in the paint store and he's asking his boss to um, forward his advance uh, for his paycheck so that he can buy this shirt. And his boss, who's like a sort of father figure, is trying to tell him, you've got to plan for the future, Tony. You've got to, you've got to wait. You've got to be sensible. Uh, and and uh, John Travolta has this um, kind of timeless line of going, tonight is the future and I am planning for it. There's a shirt, and I've got to have it. And he goes and buys the shirt. Many of us do something similar. We work in order to get to the weekend. Either to collapse, or like John, to come alive on the dance floor of Brooklyn with some wonderful flares. We rest from our work because work has become a curse, something that we get through in order to enjoy those few fleeting hours on the weekend. And alternatively, others of us do no resting at all. We pride ourselves on the hours we work. We never take a break. And we drive ourselves into the ground. But neither living solely for the weekend or ignoring it altogether is healthy or good for us. We are created to rest first and then from a place of rest, work at that which brings fulfillment. And this is so important that it makes it into the Ten Commandments. Just before adultery, just before murder, just before stealing. Could it be that being a workaholic is as bad as being a murderer? or an adulterer, or a thief. If we want to be fruitful, we must start from a place of abiding in God's presence and resting in him. So imagine a pendulum swinging. Could we have this up? I made this on Apple Pages. Uh, no expenses spared <laughs> in the visual fun of this church. Can everyone see that? I'm quite proud of it. I was going to do it in Comic Sans, uh, <laughs> but I didn't feel like you deserved that. <laughs> so a pendulum swinging between abiding and fruitfulness, fruitfulness ab and abiding. This is the rhythm we need to have in our lives. It's only when we have that that we'll see any growth in our lives. Because after having abided, we are then ready to grow again and having grown to produce fruit. But then having produced fruit and become fruitful, we then need to be pruned back again to rest in him so that we can then grow again. Jesus says this in John's Gospel. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's very important for us to grasp that growth and bearing fruit are not the same thing. Vines are actually pruned for their first three years without producing anything. 
so that their roots and branches can actually sustain the fruit when they are ready to do that, that they are strong enough to hold it up when it finally arrives. Then each year they are pruned back again so that a time of nourishment can be had before they bear fruit once more. Now, in general, our culture puts no value in anything other than fruitfulness. Be it measured by how many followers you've got, how many billions you've made, or whatever else. God, on the other hand, sees things very differently. There need to be times in our lives when pruning is what's going on. And at that time, all, if not all, then maybe most of our activity comes to an end. Times of resting and abiding. It is very wrong to resist this, to give in to our culture which says you must be doing something or you must be lazy, or, you, or otherwise you're lazy. We are people who live under grace. And abiding with our Father is a place full of grace, and without it, we will not survive. Uh, let me ask you a question. Think about the whole of human history, all the different people that have been in it. Who is the most successful? This is not a rhetorical question. Who is, who's the most successful person, do you think, in all, all of time? Does anyone want to shout one out? It's obviously Jesus. It's always Jesus. This is a church. What do you think? Warren Buffett. It's Jesus. But let's consider why that's true. Of course, Jesus saves the whole world. But that is not just why he is the most successful person. Because what he achieves is not what gives him his success. It's how he achieves it. Consider that every single second of every single hour of every single day of Jesus' life is a success. For 30 years, we don't hear about anything he does, and yet he is being wildly successful, much more successful than you will ever be. And he's also successful when he's asleep in a boat. He's also successful when he is at parties and festivals. He's successful when he's choosing not to heal people. He's successful when he leaves a town because there's not enough faith to do miracles there. He is successful every single moment of every day. I don't know what that was. What Jesus does is he perfectly models human existence. As the pendulum swings between abiding and fruitfulness, fruitfulness and abiding. And to do this for us, we will inevitably need to have times of waiting. And I know that there are lots of people here who are waiting. Waiting for things. Now, waiting is quite a strange concept in the kingdom of God. Because on the one hand... We're not made to wait at all. We're made for heaven, and in heaven there will be no waiting whatsoever. We will have everything before us, for us, all the time. It's going to be great. And so the fact that we find waiting uh, full of anguish sometimes is partly because our spirits are saying, this is not what we're meant for. And yet, at the same time, our whole experience on earth is actually one of waiting. We are all waiting for him. 
And we are all waiting for heaven. We are all waiting for every tear to be wiped away, all suffering to end, for us to be the people that we can kind of sense now and again to be fully made his. So we are actually waiting all the time. And it's why actually waiting when we do it actively and properly can actually be an extraordinarily uh, powerful time of coming close to him. As Hannah and I have said a few times, we had a long wait before we moved here. We had a 16-month wait on our visas while we were in London waiting to come here to plant the church. Through various reasons, we um, didn't have jobs. Hannah had a job. I didn't have a job. Uh, and we didn't have a house uh, or anywhere to live. And our kids weren't in school. And yet we had 16 months of trying to work out what we were doing. And we thought we'd be here planting a church, but we weren't. We were in rainy, horrible England. <laughs> And at times, I would say it was my lowest ebb. I was as low as I could possibly be. Hannah wants to say that I had a sort of mini breakdown. I'm just going to call it, I was low, all right? I have my pride. Uh, but I was very, very low. I was depressed because I didn't know what we were doing. And I was looking at my family going, I don't know why we've taken you out of school and why we've rented out our house and why I haven't got a job and why is this happening? And it was very, very low time for all of us. But also, at times, when I could, when I could actually bring myself to let God in to the pain, to the hurt, to the disappointment, to the depression, I have felt closer to him than I've ever felt before and since. And my faith grew because I had nowhere else to turn, only him. It's often when we hit rock bottom, for whatever reason, that we actually do this Christian thing properly by putting all our eggs in the Jesus basket rather than keeping a couple of them to ourselves. And so if we're able to wait with him, he will draw close to us and our faith will be inspired because he is with us and he knows what we're going through. So to end, let's get, <laughs> let's get, I was going to say, I was going to, oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> let's get practical and then let's get spiritual. It's practical. I was actually going to say, let's get physical, which is a reference to an 80s dance song, which you won't know anything about. Let's get physical, physical. Don't do that. Let me tell you about my wife, Hannah. <laughs> it's taken us 14 years to actually work out that we rest in very different ways. And it's very important to know for yourself how you rest. This is the practical bit. In my mind, when you are lying on a sun lounger on holiday, there are two things to be doing. One of two. It's a list of two, and it stops at the end of two. One of them is reading a book. The other is sleeping. Those are the only things you should ever do on a sun lounger. What is not on that list is talking, asking questions. Is it? Particularly questions such as, what are you thinking about? Or, tell me about what you're feeling. No, I will not. If you like chatting, on a sun lounger. Please feel free to take my wife on holiday next year and all subsequent years. She will chat to you forever. 
We love each other. Just not on holiday. It's also very important to see how rest affects us at different stages in our lives. On a daily basis, Jesus got up early in the morning to meet with his father and to spend time with him. That surely has to be the starting point for all of us. It doesn't have to be early in the morning, but it does have to be every day. But equally, Jesus rested through um, extended times of retreat in Mark 1. He rested with his father before he began his ministry. So perhaps before any new phases of work, any new um, things that are happening, we need to spend time, extended time with God, letting him sift our motives, letting him uh, work out in us what he needs to work out in us. And Jesus taught his disciples also that after any successful ministry trip, they needed to take time after that to rest, and we should do the same. Every time we give out, we need to rest. If you're a new parent, give yourself a break. Honestly, take it from me. I've raised three children. And when I say I, I mean Hannah. We've raised three children. If you have a new child, give yourself a break. The first, let's say, three years, just keep them alive, and you have one. That's what it takes. And when it comes to church, as we so often stress, you must not collapse your life into church, any church, this church or any other church. Do not do it. I will try to make you not do it. If I see you do it, I will stop you doing it because it will destroy you. It is very important to serve in a church. It's good to find opportunities to serve. But do not carry the whole church on your, on your back. It will kill you. As with everything in the Christian life, there are practical steps that we can take towards maturity, like building in routines where we don't actually find ourselves working 7, 8, 10, 15 days in, in a row. I know that's not always the case for some people who are freelance, but making sure that we have those rhythms is very important. I've started saying that 7 o'clock on a Friday night to 7 o'clock on a Saturday night, I am no longer doing anything other than being with my family and, and hanging out. It was difficult when we had a party at our house on a Friday night. I actually had to go upstairs and have a little sleep by myself. No one saw. So we can take practical steps. But there is also a spiritual element to it all. And this is important. We need to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit to address those things which are stopping us from having a proper rhythm in life. If we're trapped into working our fingers to the bone, especially in a job which is unfulfilling, what is it that is driving us to do that? Because if it isn't the Holy Spirit, then I've got to tell you, you're going to be heading for a fall. Money, success, impressing others, these are all common motivators in life, and none of them in and of themselves are necessarily bad things. But if they are your ultimate goal, they will not be big enough for you, and they will rob you from the inside out. Because we, all of us, were made for the king, for the king of kings. And he is the only one who can satisfy us. He is the only one who can be a big enough motivation for any of us. I was told as a kid that I could do anything, It's the product of um, having very loving parents who told me that I was amazing all the time. 
Now, the problem with that is, one, it's not true. I can't do anything. I remember when I first became a Christian starting to lead worship, and I thought, I can do this because I can do anything. I started leading worship, and then the pastor of the church came up to me and said, you're not a worship leader. Never lead worship again. It was slightly um, disconcerting, but actually I found it quite helpful because it's not true, but also anything does not mean everything. However, my problem is, because this message is still there, I think I have to do everything, and I take everything on. I find it very difficult to delegate. I um, want to be basically in charge of everything, and it kills me, because I want to be God. I want to be in charge. I want to know that I am in control. Alternatively, other people will have heard the opposite message, that you will not amount to anything. And that can lead people to either not try their hand at anything for fear of failure and for fear of proving that true, or to prove something to someone and say, I can do everything that you told me that I couldn't do. And if you succeed in that, you become proud, and if you fail in that, you become self-loathing. Instead, for all of us, let God be God. Let him be in charge of your life. Let him guide you and direct you. You have absolutely nothing to prove to him. Not one thing. He just loves you. Nothing to prove to him. And he knows you. He knows the shape he's created you to be. He knows what excites you. He knows what you're good at. And he will guide you into it. The Ten Commandments are organized in three sections. The first section is about our relationship to God. So, have no other gods but me, don't make any idols, love the Lord your God with all your heart, etc. That's the first section. The third section, which is the final ones, are all about our relationship with each other. So, don't commit adultery, don't uh, steal, don't um, honor your father and mother, those sorts of things. I mean, honor your father and mother, not don't honor your father and mother. Do all those sorts of things about other people. And then in the middle, there is this one commandment that is about our love for ourselves. Keep the Sabbath. In order to love anyone, we need to actually know ourselves to be loved. Now, self-care is very important, as this city knows very well. How's your self-care? I actually um, went for a massage before Christmas. I went for two massages, in fact. I'd never really been for a massage, uh, but I went for a massage, and it was okay. I don't really know what all the fuss is about, but, you know, have a massage. But obviously, looking after ourselves is important. However, we will only be able to love ourselves to the degree to which we actually experience God's unconditional love for us first. As we said last week, you are made for perfect love. So our limited self-love will never, therefore, be adequate. It is like trying to fill a bathtub with a thimble. Or to return to the picture of Genesis, it is like putting our little hands into the imprint that only the Holy Spirit can actually, fully, perfectly fill. 
only when we receive and go on receiving his never-ending, unconditional, perfect love for us will we have any chance of actually understanding and accepting ourselves to be lovable as people made in God's image who bear the hallmark, the imprint of the Most High God with whom the Father yearns to spend time. He longs to spend time with you. And then, having done that, we might actually think, oh, I quite like myself. But it's always that way around. Receive his love for you first. So let us end with some Isaiah. You might just want to close your eyes while I read this. When Jesus dies and resurrects, what he does is he returns us all. Not to the Garden of Eden, but to experience all that we were supposed to experience there and now. Only he can do it, only he has done it, and it has been done once and for all. So hear the words of the prophet Isaiah prophesying that very fact. Come, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. All you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Okay, you can open your eyes. This is what Jesus comes to give to all of us. Rest for our souls. He comes to bring his presence to restore all that's lost. He comes to pour himself into us. Times of refreshing, times of goodness, oil dripping down, pressed down and flowing over. This is the work of his spirit for all of us. Without it, we are running on empty. We are eating sand. We are trying to get through life without the spirit that we are made for, without his hand of imprint in us. So receive it over and over again. This is what church is for, amongst many other things. It's what church is for, to experience him again so that we might be restored. So let's stand. We will sing a song, and then at the end we will pray for people as we always do. All the talks from our Sunday services are written with an aim to point people towards and help them open themselves to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't think he's just a bit part or an optional extra in our Sunday services. Following his lead is kind of the whole point. 
So at the end of each service, we invite everyone to receive prayer. There's no magic in the way that we pray for people. We've just found that it's the easiest and most natural way to open ourselves. And that when we do that, he often meets us in the most wonderfully transformative ways. If you're able to join us at a service, we'd always encourage you to give this a go, as out of your comfort zone as it may be. Do drop us a line at hello at bread.church if you'd like to talk about any of this more. Thanks for listening.